Okay, so let me take you back just a few nights ago. My wife and I are heading out to our car. We're going to go home from my son's high school basketball game. And we're about 30 minutes away and one of my daughter's calls. And you can tell there is panic in her voice. Uh, Dad, mom, something really bad's happened. And if you ever experienced this as a parent, you will know that your mind immediately goes to worst case scenario. Somebody is hurt, they're hurt bad, or a million other things pop instantly into your head. And so we say, uh, Mackie, anybody hurts? Everybody okay? And she says, no, no, no. And we ease up just a tiny bit. So we press on. What is it? And my wife and I are still just staring at the phone. Um, on another note, one of the kids these days moments, apparently for many, a phone call is a video call. How are you supposed to just talk if you can't see the person? But that is for another podcast on another day. But she finally says, there's a snake in the pool and I'm freaked out. So I relax a little bit, sit back in my seat and I start driving home. And I know that my wife will now be the manager of emotions for the next 30 minutes. My daughter had a cousin over and we both families just got these new puppies. They were playing in the backyard when they spotted this slithery snake just swimming in the pool. And so for the next 30 minutes, we went through the rounds of empathy and how hard that must be and positive comments. I'm really proud of the way that you're handling this of trying to provide a little bit of a riverbank to her rushing waters of emotions. You know, you're fine. The snake won't jump out of the pool. Just hang tight to which she Googled if snakes can jump out of pools. And apparently we were right. They can't or in theory, they can't. And in this simple exchange, I really did start thinking of the power of using positive language, of compliments, of strength building statements, but how at some point you almost feel like you have done your time in this land of positivity, in this land of empathy, and you're fighting back, uh, uh, you just need to calm down. Everything's going to be fine. To which, for the record, and I think you know where I'm going with this, nobody stops instantly and says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Uh, what's this idea that you're suggesting? It, it had not even dawned on me to, um, what was it again? Calm down. No, I, I, I mean, I like emotionally dysregulating and feeling like I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, but this whole calm down thing, I think you might be onto something. I'm gonna have to try that out. Um, no, you know, they, they don't say that. And, uh, Really, what happens is people are in their amygdala, their fight or flight response, especially when you see this creepy snake swimming in the pool. So that logical brain is gone. And so they are not going to grab, wade into the pool, grab the snake by the bare hands and put it back in the field where he belongs. But yeah, that didn't happen. And as most of us know, telling someone to calm down doesn't calm them down or telling somebody to, hey, relax or don't worry about it. Rarely elicits some sort of Zen-like immediate meditative state from the person that was just told to relax. But we did get home and I grabbed a pool net and far more easily than I anticipated, I was able to scoop the snake up, put him in a box and carry him to a nearby field where he slithered back to his family and no doubt hearing something akin to what were you thinking going to swim in those people's pool from his spouse. But where is that line between empathy, 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 and then more of a firm response? You know, how does one stand their ground or speak their truth without the conversation immediately going south? Well, today we're going to talk about some research out of the Gottman Institute, one of the world's most renowned sources of marriage research headed by the legendary therapists and researchers, Drs. John and Julie Gottman. And we're going to discuss the often quoted statistic that every couple needs at least five positive comments for every one negative comment. So is that, is that actually true or is this a pop psychology myth that is misquoted? So we're going to cover that and so much more coming up on today's episode of The Virtual Couch. Hey, everybody. Welcome. 
Welcome to episode 264 of The Virtual Couch. And you know, I'm going to be experimenting a bit with the openings over the coming weeks. I think it's uh, time to freshen things up, time for a change. And I'll share more about that in the next week or two. But uh, I do have a couple of new podcasts coming out. And one has to do with the work that I've done around women in relationships with men with narcissistic tendencies or behaviors or patterns or even full-blown narcissistic personality disorder. And that one is called Waking Up to Narcissism. And it is coming soon. So look for that if you follow my Virtual Couch Instagram account or follow me on Facebook, Tony Overbay, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist or Virtual Couch there, then you'll you'll hear more about that as it is ready to launch. And then I'll share more about the second one in the coming weeks. But so while I am still your host, Tony Overbay, and I'm indeed a licensed marriage and family therapist and all those things. If you want to know more about the work that I do with recovery or parenting or couples or faith journeys, then just head over to TonyOverbay.com or find again that virtual couch account on Instagram or the, the accounts on Facebook. So let's get to today's topic. I am going to be referring to an article directly off of the Gottman Institute website called The Magic Relationship Ratio According to Science by Kyle Benson. So where Kyle starts is he says, whether it's about not having enough sex or the dirty laundry or spending too much money, the idea of conflict is inevitable in every marriage. And I will be, of course, interjecting my own opinions throughout this uh, podcast. And so one of the things that I've been pretty fascinated by over the last few months in preparing my magnetic marriage course, along with my buddy Preston Pugmire, is this concept of that conflict. And so as Kyle talks about, yeah, conflict is inevitable, but I do feel that we are so afraid of contention that we avoid this concept of tension altogether. And so too often when we are afraid of tension because we uh, are worried it will turn to contention or we're afraid of tension because we don't necessarily have the framework or the tools to discuss difficult concepts, then this is where we just proverbially kick the can down the road. We're going to deal with um situations that maybe don't go as well as we want them to, we'll, we'll do it later. We'll deal with that next week or next time, or, you know, I don't want to rock the boat when the waters are calm, which I understand. But unfortunately that just keeps people in this proverbial pattern of unproductive conversations. So back to the article to understand the difference between happy and unhappy couples, Dr. Gottman and Robert Levinson began doing longitudinal studies of couples back in the 1970s. And they asked couples to solve a conflict in their relationship in 15 minutes. And then they sat back and they watched. And so after reviewing tapes and following up with these couples some nine years later, they were able to predict which couples would stay together and which would divorce with over 90% accuracy. And they brought that into their, their couples work uh, moving forward. And their discovery was actually pretty simple. The difference between happy and unhappy couples is the balance between positive and negative interactions during conflict. And that sentence right there kind of gives the keys to the unlocks the mysteries here. The difference with the balance between positive and negative interactions during conflict. And there's a specific ratio that makes love last. They said that according to them, their research, the magic ratio was five to one, meaning that for every negative interaction, notice I didn't say comment, but for every negative interaction during conflict, a stable and happy marriage has five or more positive interactions. So when the masters of marriage are talking about something important, Dr. Gottman said, they may be arguing, but they are also laughing, teasing, and there are signs of affection because they have made emotional connections. But on the other hand, he said that unhappy couples tend to engage in fewer positive interactions to compensate for their escalating negativity. So if the positive to negative ratio during conflict, again, it's positive to negative ratio during conflict is one to one or less then that is unhealthy and it indicates a couple 
that may be teetering on the edge of divorce. So positive and negative interactions, not comments, but we're talking about interactions. And I remember going to a training. This is early in my therapy career when I still didn't even think I would be doing much couples work. And the trainer in essence said that she had seen couples almost hold up a hand when arguing and say, okay, okay, okay. So, uh, let's see, she's nice to animals. She's pretty. She has nice hair. Um, she brushes her teeth at least two minutes each time. How many is that? Is it four. Okay. Uh, she, I don't know. She doesn't hold her fork like a caveman when she eats. So is that five? Okay, good. But when she hums under her breath all day, it drives me insane. So, that's somebody that is obviously taking things very literal. Think of the hotels.com commercials and Captain Obvious, but maybe change that last part to Captain Literal. And that is truly not what is meant by this five to one ratio. So are you a Captain Literal in your relationships? Well, you, you asked me what I thought, so I told you. you know, are you that guy or girl? Or do things like tact and compassion come into the picture? So in the scenario I mentioned where the husband is counting off the positive, I guess, ish things or words... Is he truly wanting to build a bridge of empathy so that his wife is leaning in, uh, ready to hear his concerns, or is she already preparing for criticism because she knows it's coming, even if he's counting off these five positive comments? So first, let's, let's dig a little deeper into what Gottman says is a negative interaction. Because remember, we're talking about a five to one ratio of positive to negative interactions during conflict, which is a lot different than just coming up with five Nice things to say before you unload something negative. So uh, back to the article, Benson says that examples of negative interactions include another predictor of divorce. And first up are what he calls these four horsemen. And I've done a, a episode on this long ago, but this is a fascinating concept by Gottman. And before I learned the skills of emotionally focused therapy of EFT, which went on to uh, help me create this magnetic marriage course, I, I learned so much about Gottman. And that was um, that was really helpful in my own relationship and also when I would get couples in, in my office early on in my career. So Gottman's four horsemen are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. And before I even dig a little bit more into those, I really do believe with everything in my bones that, uh, that my four pillars of a connected conversation are absolutely necessary to provide a framework for healthy, connected conversations. And by a super, super quick review... Um, the four pillars. It's the foundation, in my opinion. And they are, they are a difficult thing to master because they aren't natural. They don't flow from us because we have tried to have conversations and they have not gone well in our relationships. So we get defensive and we are starting sometimes from within our bunker. And so the first pillar is assuming good intentions. This is the, no one wakes up and thinks, how can I hurt my spouse or my partner? So if somebody is withdrawn, Instead of their spouse, let's just use the scenario right now where let's say that the wife is withdrawn, that if the husband says, okay, I, what am I supposed to do with that? That is, that is violating pillar one of assuming good intentions. If she's withdrawn, I want him to say, man, she doesn't wake up and say, I know what I'll do. I'll withdraw. That'll get him. No, if she's withdrawn, then I want that to help him start to literally lean in with empathy. So pillar one, assuming good intentions. Number two, you can't send that message of you're wrong or I don't believe you even if you don't believe them or you think that they are wrong. Because if the goal is to have a connected conversation, and that's what I'm proposing, that the goal is to be heard, not to resolve, then we want to keep the conversation going so that you can feel heard and you can get to your thoughts. So examples of sending the message of you're wrong, there's some easy ones by literally telling someone, I don't believe you or you're wrong. But this is where it becomes pretty fascinating of even if you are 
doing the eye roll or the deep sigh, or you start checking your phone or those sort of things during a conversation that can even put out this vibe of, you know, I don't believe you or I I don't, I think you're wrong with this whole thing. So I'm going to show you by disengaging in the conversation. And there's also the kind of a fascinating one where when somebody says, uh, I don't know if I can you know, give this talk on Sunday and we say, no, you can, you can do hard things. I know you can. That one sounds awesome. And we may even mean that, but it still skips a really important part of empathy where we're telling the person, no, no, that's ridiculous. You're wrong. You can do it. I I know you can without saying, Hey, tell me why you're feeling that way, which leads to pillar three, asking questions before making comments. Even if you feel like after you hear, um, your, your spouse say something that you, you have some struggles with, or it stings a little bit, or there is that tension when they express themselves instead of saying, okay, well, let me just tell you my side really quick. And then you're welcome to open up. No, start by asking questions before making comments. And then pillar four is stay present, lean in, don't go into victim mode. You know, you can have, you can do all three of the first pillars extremely well. If your wife says, uh, Hey, I feel like you have been a little bit more disengaged in the relationship. Number one, assuming good intentions. She's not saying that to hurt me. She's saying that because she wants to be heard. Number two, I can't say that's ridiculous. Even if I have been practicing on a daily basis to get home sooner or to be more engaged, because obviously if she is saying, I feel like you have not been home on time or you feel more disengaged, then I want to know why, why does she feel that way? So then that leads to pillar three. I'm going to ask, Hey, tell me more about that. Help me see my blind spots. I, I wasn't aware that you felt that way. That would be difficult. That would be hard. And then four is then staying present, not going into the bunker, not going into victim mode. The guy in that point can't say, okay, well, I guess it really doesn't matter what I'm doing. Apparently you don't want to hear because you can do those first three correctly. And then if you violate pillar four, now you're basically saying, Hey, I'm going to go into my bunker and I would like for you to come rescue me, please. So I feel like those are still so important. Even as we get to this concept of Gottman's four pillars or four pillars, my four pillars, Gottman's four horsemen. So let's, let's kind of talk more about those. So um, the first horseman that Gottman says that is part of these negative interactions is criticism. So criticizing your partner is absolutely different than offering a critique or, or even voicing a complaint. Those latter two are about specific issues where Gottman says the former is an ad hominem attack. So it's an attack on your partner at the core of their character. And in fact, you're dismantling their whole being when you criticize And I know that sounds heavy, but I really appreciate the way he says that because I often feel like what is the goal in a conversation? I will watch those when people don't adhere to these, my four pillars, I feel like, what is your goal? Is it to, and I will often say, break down the other person's world or reality. But of course, Gottman says it's so much better. Are you trying to dismantle their whole being when you criticize? And so Gottman says the important thing is to learn the difference between expressing a complaint and criticizing. A complaint might be an example. I was scared when you were running late and you didn't call me. I thought we'd agreed that we would do that for each other versus a criticism is you never think about how your behavior is affecting other people. I don't believe that you are forgetful. I think you're selfish. You don't think of others. You know, you never think of me. And if you find that you and your partner are critical of each other, don't assume that the relationship is doomed to fail. Gottman says the problem with criticism is that when it becomes pervasive, it paves the way for other far deadlier horsemen to follow. And that's why, again, I feel like if we don't have the structure or the framework to be able to even communicate, then things, these, these horsemen do kind of line up, which leads to his second horseman of contempt. So when we communicate in this state, we are truly mean. Common says that we treat others with disrespect when, when contempt comes into play. 
This is where people mock with sarcasm or ridicule, call them names, mimic, use body language such as eye rolling or scoffing. And I will tell you right now, there is, there's truly no place in a relationship for any of these things because the target of contempt is, is made to feel despised or worthless. Like their opinion doesn't even matter. And contempt can go far, far beyond criticism. Gottman said that while criticism attacks your partner's character, contempt assumes a position of moral superiority over them. And he gives an example in this article of, you know, saying, you know, you're tired, cry me a river. I've been with the kids all day, running around like mad to keep this house going. And all you do when you come home from work is flop down on the sofa like a child and play those video games. I, you know, I don't have time to deal with another kid. Could you be any more pathetic? You know, you can, you can feel where that can cut. And research even shows that couples that are contemptuous, this is so fascinating. Um, if they're contemptuous of each other, they're more likely to suffer from infectious illness, colds, the flu, et cetera, than others, because it weakens your immune system. Contempt is fueled by long simmering negative thoughts about a partner, which come to a head when the perpetrator attacks the accused from a position of relative superiority. And most importantly, Gottman says, is contempt is the single greatest predictor of divorce. It absolutely, absolutely must be eliminated. And here's where I'll throw in a couple of my favorite uh, psychological principles, the expectation effect and, and confirmation bias. You know, with the expectation effect, it really is what are what are you looking for in your spouse? Um, and the expectation effect is this phenomenon where perception and behavior changes as a result of personal expectations or the expectations of others. So the expectation effect, it demonstrates that um, our expectations on items, things, people can greatly influence our perceptions and even influence our behavior. For example, if you tell a bunch of people that some new product is going to change their lives, then a significant number of people will find their lives changed. The belief is simply uh, the device that can help create change. I remember hearing early on in my therapy career that there was a statistic that said that even just setting up a couples therapy appointment had an effect that was, uh, it was significant. I want to say that, you know, 20 or 30 or might've even been higher percentage of couples felt uh, a, a dose of hope just from setting up the appointment. And that I feel like is that expectation effect. So once a person believes that something's going to happen, that belief alone creates possibility. Now, unfortunately, this can have a negative effect on the ability to accurately measure something's success because we typically get this bump of um, happiness or euphoria or with the expectation and then if once you have this expectation, then you aren't nurturing that expectation or doing work behind that expectation, then there's also some data that can show that you return back to baseline. I found a pretty interesting uh, graph that says the expectation of it can absolutely influence perception and behavior, but the changes can be temporary, I believe, if you don't work with that expectation. So if you have an expectation that your spouse is, is kind, is nice, is trying their best, then you are going to look for those areas that prove that fact to you. And you're going to act differently based on that expectation. But if you don't continue to nurture that expectation or start to find a way or a framework to be able to have conversations and use this, this time where you have this higher or this better, more positive expectation of your spouse or yourself or your kid, then over time that uh, you'll go back to baseline because you know, our path, our, our brains want to go back the path of least resistance. So you have to nurture even the expectation effect. Um, I, man, I talk about this often, but the very quick example on a podcast I did on expectation effect was done with laboratory mice where there was a group of uh, people, they were divided into two and there was a group of mice. They were divided into two. Half the group were given a group of mice, one, one group of mice. And they were told by the people running the test that these mice were maze bright 
mice, that they were, they were born and bred genetically altered to be able to get through mazes quickly. And the other group were given just the other group of mice. And they were said, they said, yeah, these are just mice. Good luck. And so both of the groups of people then spent a few days training the mice to get through a maze. And not surprisingly, if you know the expectation effect, the group that were given the maze bright rats, those rats or mice actually made it through the maze over twice as fast as the, what they deemed maze dull rats. Now that's when they said, surprise, these rats are all the same, but it shows you how significant the expectation effect is that the researchers or the trainers, the people that had the maze bright rats, all they were told was that these rats are gifted. They can get through mazes faster then the people training the rats had the expectation that these were maze bright rats. And therefore, I don't know what they did. They tried harder. They, they, they spoke more positively, but that is so fascinating. And so I often say, are you treating your spouse as a maze bright spouse or a maze dull spouse? Or are you treating your kid as a maze bright uh, kid or a maze dull kid? Or are you looking at yourself as a maze bright person or a maze dull person? And that, that is the expectation effect. And then the other part that I, I love talking about is confirmation bias. And that is, what are you looking for? And uh, I remember I was sharing in a one of these magnetic marriage coaching calls that the first I bought a Mini Cooper long ago. And you know, when you when you drive it off the lot, you are then all of a sudden just blown away by the number of Mini Coopers on the road. Where did all these things come from? But that is confirmation bias that we really do look for what we look for. So if we have this expectation effect of our spouse being positive, of their maze bright spouse. And then we have a confirmation bias of looking for the good, then that is going to drive us to have better behavior. And that will be the opposite of this contempt or Gottman's second horseman. The third horseman that he talks about is defensiveness. And this is typically a response to criticism. And I feel like we can all safely say that we've been on the defensive. And Gottman says this horseman is nearly omnipresent when our relationships are on the rocks. When we feel unjustly accused, we often fish for excuses or we play the innocent victim so that our partner will back off. And this truly is, it's a childhood coping mechanism. It makes sense. When we were kids, we didn't, we wouldn't own up to anything because we're little kids. We're still coming from this place of uh, abandonment equals death. If I admit to something and I get in trouble, these guys might boot me out of the clan. You know, we know now that that's not the case, but that's where we're coming from when we're often uh, in that position as a child. And we bring that off into our adulthood as often just not taking ownership of things, not taking accountability. Now, as Gottman says, unfortunately, the strategy is almost never successful. The strategy of defensiveness. Our excuses just tell our partner that we won't take their concerns seriously and that we won't take responsibility for our mistakes. So we gave the example a question. Hey, did you call Betty and Ralph and let them know that we're not coming tonight? Um, like you had mentioned you would do this morning. And the defensive response is, ah, I was just too busy. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, just how busy my schedule was. Why, why don't you just do it? So this partner not only responds defensively, but then they reverse blame in an attempt to make the other partner at the other partner's fault. So instead, a non-defensive response can express acceptance of responsibility, admission of fault, or understanding that your partner's perspective. And I did an episode at one point on the, just accountability. And one of my friends sent me a text and they showed me the, a little board they have at their home. And it said, try this instead. My bad. I think that's what it said. But so, and that's all we're asking at times. Sometimes it feels so scary to say, oh man, I totally forgot. That is, that is the easiest way to diffuse something is to take ownership of it, of to literally say, yeah, my bad. So although it is perfectly understandable to defend yourself, especially if you're stressed out or you feel attacked, this approach does not have the desired effect of connection. Defensiveness only escalates the conflict, especially if the critical spouse doesn't back down 
or they apologize. This is because defensiveness is really, as Gottman says, it's a way of blaming your partner and it won't allow for healthy conflict management. And the fourth horseman that he talks about is stonewalling, which is usually an attempt, its response to contempt. Stonewalling occurs when the listener withdraws from the interaction. You know, they shut down. They simply stop responding to their partner. And then rather confront, rather than confronting the issues with their partner, people who stonewall can make these evasive maneuvers, such as tuning out, turning away, acting busy, engaging in obsessive or distracting behaviors, AKA turning to their phone. You know, the, the phone has become one of the great, um, uh, facilitators of stonewalling. And trust me, I use my phone every day. I use it often. I'm, as a matter of fact, I'm paying attention to the uh, screen time app and trying to really, on a weekly basis, be, make a conscious effort to get my own screen time down. But man, the phone can just all of a sudden be one of the greatest objects used for stonewalling. So if you feel like you are stonewalling during a conflict, stop the discussion and ask your partner to take a break. You know, you can say it's perfectly fine to say, all right, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit too emotional or flooded to keep talking about this. Can we take a little break? And but but one of the keys is promising that we'll come back to this because it's easier to work through when people have gotten out of that amygdala, that fight or flight response. And the four horsemen, so as well as feelings of loneliness or isolation, those are additional um, negative interactions. So. Kyle Benson says that while anger is certainly a negative interaction and a natural reaction during conflict, that anger isn't necessarily damaging to a marriage. Dr. Gottman explains that anger only has negative effects in marriage if it's expressed along with criticism or contempt or if it's defensive. Uh, you know, you, it is okay for you to say, man, I'm really frustrated or, but especially staying in the I feel statements. It's not that you make me mad because, but hey, I'm really frustrated because I felt like we had a, an agreement or, I, I'm really sad or I'm really hurt or I worry that or it, this, you know, I feel like. And so negative interactions during a conflict include also being emotionally dismissive or critical or becoming defensive. And body language such as eye rolling can be a very, very powerful negative interaction. Or we've probably seen if our partner has given a sigh or they've turned away from us. And it is so important to remember that negativity holds a great deal of emotional power, which is why he goes on to say it takes po five positive interactions to overcome any one negative interaction. So five positive interactions to compensate for an eye roll or a sigh or any of those four horsemen. And these negative interactions do happy. I mean, they happen in healthy marriages too, but they're quickly repaired and replaced with validation and empathy. And I will add ownership and accountability. So the five positive interactions, Gottman says that couples who flourish engage in conflict differently than those who eventually break up. He said, not only do masters of marriage start conflicts more gently, and I, and I love referring to that as a softer, um, you know, a uh, soft entry point, but they also make repairs in both minor and major ways that highlight the positivity in their relationship. And so he lists these interactions that he says stable couples use regularly to maintain positivity and closeness. Be interested. When your partner complains about something, do you listen? Are you curious about why he or she is so mad? So displaying interest includes asking open-ended questions, as well as more subtle signals such as nods, making eye contact, timely uh-huhs that show that you are listening. I still remember when I used to travel to Japan on business when I was in the computer software industry and just watching uh, the interactions with my, my business partner and some of the people we would meet with, and there was this constant back and forth of just hi. Hi, you know, and, and I, w I remember asking Yoshida-san, hey, why do you keep telling the person hi? And I think I was being a little bit jokey with that. But he said it's just a way of, of acknowledging. And it's almost the, uh-huh, uh-huh, I hear you. Tell me more, you know, the hi, hi. 
And it shows how closely that you're listening. Um, expressing affection. Do you hold hands with your partner? Do you offer a romantic kiss? Do you embrace your partner when you see him or at the end of the day? So expressions of affection often happen, happen in small ways, both within and outside of conflict. Within conflict, displays of physical and verbal affection will reduce stress. Now, I'm not saying that if you are somebody that has been emotionally or physically abused, that this means now apparently I have to hold hands, lean in, give them a hug or a kiss. But if you're having a difficult conversation and your partner takes your hand and says, man, this is hard to talk about, but I really love you. And I know that we're going to be able to figure this out together. You are likely going to feel better because their display of affection is bound to reduce tension and bring you closer together. I did an entire episode long ago on oxytocin. It's also called the cuddle hormone. And when there is that connection, even just that uh, putting one's hand on one's arm or shoulder or knee, that you really do reduce tension or stress. And again, I will, I will put an asterisk there unless there has been a long standing period of emotional or physical um, abuse or conflict, but that oxytocin really does uh, reduce or lower the cortisol or the fight or flight response. And it's pretty fascinating. Sue Johnson has some studies that are, I think in her book, love sense as well and hold me tight. And I'm going to butcher this, but it was something to the effect of uh, a woman going in to get, uh, I want to say a shot or something like that for something. And if she's just by herself, they can measure cortisol level is high. If her husband is in the other room, then the cortisol level is lower. And if her husband is uh, in the, or maybe it's in the room with her, but then if the husband's in the room and, and they're holding hands, then her cortisol levels are significantly lower. So that is that um, oxytocin. So another one is to demonstrate that they matter. You know, our, our motto, Gottman says, from making marriage last is that small th- is small things often that the small acts that demonstrate you care are powerful and ways to enhance the positivity in your marriage. So bringing up something that is important to your partner, even when you disagree, demonstrates that you're putting their interest on par with yours and it shows your partner that you care about them. Um, Cal Benson goes on to say, how you treat each other outside of conflict influences how well you're able to handle the inevitable disagreements. For example, if your partner's having a bad day and you stop, you pick up dinner on the way home, you're showing them that you're thinking about them. And those small gestures accumulate over time and will provide a buffer of positivity in your marriage so that when you do enter conflict, it will be easier to engage in a positive interaction and ones that typically outweigh the negative. And, uh, and, I, and I see this often. I mean, I know as myself, as an anxious attachment or words of affirmation guy or um, that I really do love when I get a text from my wife that just says, hey, I'm thinking about you. And, uh, and I love sending those, those texts throughout the day to my kids, to my wife, um, maybe to just somebody that I'm thinking about. And so, you know, we want to know that we're seen. Um, my friend Julie Lee, her book, I See You, I think about that often, is that we want to know that I see you, and that you matter to me. And so I feel like it goes a long way to be able to let somebody know that you are thinking about them. I had a beautiful, and I'm going to save some uh, additional details of this for a future podcast, but I had a beautiful interaction with a couple in my office very, very recently where there had been some trauma. Um, and, but this couple is working really, really hard on their magnetic marriage, uh, four pillars of a connected conversation in session, their EFT skills. And, and I always say that the way to make sure that, you know, quote this, whatever this was won't happen again in the future is to be able to bring up things, even when waters are calm, even things that seem small. And this was, again, I loved this example. The example was, the wife said that she was used to, after they had been through some pretty rough patches, the husband sitting by her and that uh, she had noticed that it's been a year or so into their, their recovery, their work, they're, they're really working hard. They're doing amazing. And, but the wife mentioned that 
Hey, I, I don't even feel like I want to bring this up because I feel like it's petty or it's small, but I noticed that he isn't as intentional about sitting by me at, uh, around the kids or just whenever we're together. And so she said, but I, but again, I don't, I feel like this isn't a big deal. And I said, man, this is the beautiful part where this is a big deal because we want to talk about these small interactions. We don't have to just have these, um, high, you know, these, these, we don't have to put the four pillars in place only on high charge topics like sex and politics and religion and finances and, um, parenting like that. We don't have to do them on just those. Let's do it right here. So we had a, an amazing session where she was able to say, Hey, I'm noticing that you haven't been as intentional of sitting by me. And so dropping those into the four pillars saying to the guy, all right, assuming good intention, she's not saying that to hurt you. And you can't say that's ridiculous or she's wrong, even if you felt like you, that is, but, but he didn't. And then he was right there in pillar three to ask questions before making comments. And he said, oh man, you know, like, when have you seen this or, or tell me when you've noticed this? And she, she said, oh, it's been this, this often, or I've noticed it in these times. And then he didn't go into, you know, he didn't break pillar four and then not lean in. He didn't go run to his bunker and say, okay, fine. I, let me go get some needle and thread. I'll sew myself, you know, to your side and we will never be apart. You know, he didn't go into victim mode. He just said, I really appreciate you sharing that with me. And, and I think I have kind of noticed that a little bit. And, and he sat there with a little bit of that tension, you know, and, uh, because it, it can be uncomfortable if his answer might be, I, I yeah, I, I did. I, maybe I noticed that, or I, I can understand how hard that would be. And I didn't, I didn't mean it. And I can do better about that. And that's a perfectly wonderful, fair, beautiful interaction of where both partners felt heard. And so now I guarantee you, he's going to be more intentional about it. And she's going to feel like he really listened to me or he cares. Um, intentional appreciation. Gottman says, uh, how you think about your partner, again, influences how you treat them. I think this goes back to that expectancy effect that I talked about. By focusing on the positives of your marriage, such as the good moments from your past and your partner's admirable traits, you put positive energy into your relationship. Now, negativity is bound into your thoughts, especially during conflict. But intentionally focusing on the positive will counterbalance any of the moments when you struggle to find something good about your partner. And then he says, now turn your thoughts into action. Every time you express a positive thinking, give your partner a verbal compliment, no matter how small, and you're strengthening your marriage. And I would go on to say, I almost did an episode on gratitude today because I wanted to go back and revisit the science, the science of gratitude. But I feel like it is absolutely imperative, necessary, and it will help your marriage if you keep a gratitude journal of your spouse, even if it's one thing a day of something unique or different that you value or view or appreciate or are grateful for about your spouse, what does that do? You're looking for those things you can put in this gratitude journal. And even in times where you feel like things maybe aren't as strong, you can go back and say, okay, here's these things that I so admire about my spouse. So that is something I am going to absolutely do. And I would, I would love it if people did that same thing. And then empathize and apologize. Uh, Kyle Benson says empathy is one of the deepest forms of human connection. When you empathize with your spouse, you show that you understand and you feel what you, you do your best to feel what your partner's feeling. Even if you express empathy non-verbally through the facial expressions or physical gestures, saying things like, it makes sense to me that you feel that way will help your partner see that you are on their team. Empathy is a profound connecting skill that all romantic partners can and should improve. And there's no limit to the amount of empathy that you can express. And I would add, and I talked about this in a, and a magnetic marriage group call last night, it is okay for a partner to express that they struggle with empathy. That is, again, one of the most touching, beautiful moments I see in my office is when somebody says, okay, I got to be honest, I struggle with this. 
it's hard for me not to go right to my needs. You know, I struggle keeping pillar three of questions before comments. And so being that emotionally vulnerable is what can help build connection. And if your partner is upset with something you did or said, maybe start with an apology. If you can find a moment during a conflict to say, man, I am so sorry I hurt your feelings. That really does, it makes me feel sad. Then you're going to provide a positive and empathetic interaction that can reinforce that bond. And then one of the key things that Gottman talks about is accept your partner's perspective. An approach that drastically improves conflict uh, is understanding that each of your perspectives are valid, even when they are opposed to each other. I won't even go down my acceptance and commitment therapy path here, but each one of you is the very uh, only version of you, period, end of story. And we're going to have different thoughts and feelings and emotions because we're different human beings. So while you may not agree with your partner's perspective, letting them know that their perspective um, that you can understand where they're coming from, or that would make more sense when you hear them out, will show them that you respect them. And one of the best ways to do this is to summarize your spouse's experience. Um, even if you disagree, it's like, tell me more about that. What's that like for you? How long have you felt that way? How, how have I shown up in that uh, situation? Because remember that, and this is so key, and I run into this all the time, validation doesn't mean agreement, but it does signal respect. Because just because you say, man, I, I can understand that would be difficult, doesn't mean you're saying, you're right, I'm a horrible piece of garbage, but it does show respect. And I love that Gottman puts in here, make jokes, playful, teasing, silliness, and finding moments to laugh together can ease tension in a heated conflict. Now, it doesn't always go well, but I feel like it is definitely one of the greatest uh, diffusion techniques is to to uh, even self-deprecating humor or making humor. Most couples have inside jokes they only share with each other. And this highlights the exclusivity that a couple has. But but again, Benson adds, however, a word of caution, remember to, uh, to find a way to joke around that maintains respect and appreciation for your spouse. And that serves to bring you both closer together. And I think of this often of where I've had a couple of times where someone's left my room, they've been really, really upset. And uh, one of the times when I was a brand new therapist, a guy got up, stormed out of the room. And as he tried to slam the door, he hit the back of his own foot, you know, and I remember it was such an intense moment. And then uh, I just looked over at the wife and I felt like, oh, I don't know what to say here. But I, man, I default to humor all the time. And I just looked at her and I said, I don't think that went the way he thought it would. I don't think that went as well as he thought it would go. And she kind of chuckled and it really did ease the mood a little bit. And when he finally did uh, come back into counseling, we were able to joke about that and, and still do at times to this day. So Gottman says, or Kyle Benson, who works for Gottman says, test your ratio. Is your relationship unbalanced? Observe how you and your partner interact. For every negative interaction that happens, are there more positive interactions? Not just comments, but interactions. If not, take it upon yourself to create more positive interactions in your relationship. And also try and notice the small moments of positivity positivity that currently exist there and the, the things that maybe you've been missing. And then I love, uh, I was going on my role about journals and, uh, he even says, keep a journal for a week that notes positive interactions, however small in your marriage. As Dr. Gottman's research has revealed, the more positive actions and feelings you can create in your marriage, the happier and more stable your marriage will be. So I, I hope, uh, that you can now take a look and, and as, uh, as my, my friend, my, uh, cohort in the magnetic marriage course, Preston Pugmire often says, I hope that you aren't necessarily listening to this episode with your elbow of like, man, I really hope my, my spouse will hear this, but what are, how are you showing up? Are you creating those positive interactions or are you engaged in any of those four horsemen that Gottman describes? And if so, Hey, uh, welcome to the world of awareness. It's, it's, it's empowering. It doesn't mean that you'll be all better and doing things completely different by tomorrow, but it definitely means that you're on your way. So I um, appreciate you joining me. I'd love for you to take a look at your own relationship and feel free to send me any comments that you have, questions um, at contact at TonyOverbay.com. 
and uh, questions. I want to get back to doing a couple of episodes every uh, every once in a while on answering some questions. They get so many, and they're wonderful questions. So have an amazing week, and I will see you next time on the virtual couch. Flying past our heads and out the other end. The pressures of the daily grind is wonderful. Elastic waste and rubber ghost. I'm floating past the midnight hour. They push aside the things that matter most. It's Explode, allow